morning and welcome to the Data Democratization Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Dobin, a privacy expert at Mostly AI. And as you might have heard, organizations leverage our technology to democratize data by generating truthful, privacy-compliant, synthetic alternatives to offload privacy-sensitive data. If you're unfamiliar, and I can't claim to have come up with this analogy, but I really like it, AI-generated synthetic data is a bit like diet soda. You get all the fizz without the calories. With synthetization, you get all the richness of data without exposing any personally identifiable information. Today is Data Privacy Day, and to celebrate, we are releasing the first episode of our brand new podcast dedicated to exploring inspiring stories from the frontiers of data and privacy management. This podcast series will bring you the most influential data leaders who will share their most valuable insights and advice. Our first guest is Shampa Chatterjee, Director of Data Privacy at Silicon Valley Bank. Shampa spent almost 18 years at American Express and was working in the field long before privacy was even a thing, which makes her an OG in the data privacy world. We're so grateful to have her today. She is co-chair of the IAPP's chapter in Phoenix and also a member of the Women Leading Privacy Advisory Board. Shampa, happy Data Privacy Day. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Jeff, and thank you for, for having me. It's indeed an honor. So let's jump right into things. I understand you kind of fell into the privacy space, but that you've remained working in this area by choice. Why is this? Can you share your story? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to start off with a little bit of a disclaimer that the views that I express here are, are my own and they do not represent those of my employer. Of course, you know, my opinions and viewpoints are shaped by and informed by my work in the financial services sector here in the United States, spanning about the last 25 years or so. Um, so being a, a computer science major in grad school, I really started as a programmer at American Express, as you said, about 18, 19 odd years ago. And I likely would have stayed along those same lines back in the day, like you said, privacy or data protection didn't used to be a formal profession. Um, organizations would probably have uh, one or two people sitting within um, either their CISO organization or within compliance or within risk that would work on things related to privacy, among other things. Um, being in the financial services space, though, uh, has been helpful for me. So as you know, you know, here in the US, we've had sectoral laws, such as GLBA, that regulates consumer privacy and the concept of non-public um, personal information. Um, so working for a big bank, I was certainly aware of the risks and obligations, which was definitely helpful. Um, very early on, I also started supporting international markets around the globe, which allowed me an appreciation for the differences in the way privacy is perceived in uh, non-US countries. Um, also kind of gave me an appreciation for the regional nuances, if you will. So for example, in the EU nations, privacy is considered a basic fundamental human right, which is not the case here in the US. Um, the awareness on the main street among lay people is so much deeper rooted than it is here. 
and the regulatory framework is even so much more mature. So as you know, U.S. doesn't even meet the, the adequacy notion of EU member states, for example. And then you're seeing in the Asian countries uh, that are rapidly evolving the privacy regulatory landscape. India has the sweeping national privacy law taking shape as we speak. Um, uh, Latin America, even in the past uh, few years, you've seen privacy, comprehensive privacy laws in countries like Brazil with the LGPD. Long story short, the evolution of the regulatory space has been fascinating to watch. So going back to my days at American Express, very early on, it kind of fell into my lap to create a consent management platform for our international market. So knowing that at that time, uh, this was being handled within a marketing department. So that's where I sat. But it was an opportunity for me to design customer digital journeys and UIs that were compliant with the different international um, consent requirements. It kind of allowed me to put myself into my customer's shoes. What would I like to see from my bank? Or what assurances would I like to get from my healthcare providers or from my children's schools? that they were doing the right things when it comes to hand handling my personal and sensitive data. So it's a little bit about advocacy, isn't it? So being an advocate for the client or the customer, which was very close to my heart even before then. In my personal life, serving the community, advocating for those who are not as privileged as I find myself to be, has always been very important for me my entire life. As my dad used to say, or likes to say, uh, it's a bone you're born with, not something that, that you chance upon or something that you find along the way. Um, over the years, I've volunteered extensively with organizations such as Habitat for Humanity, um, uh, Special Olympics for children with special needs, several local food banks, shelters for the homeless, oftentimes raising grant monies to support these organizations financially. Um, I've taught financial literacy and workplace um, readiness in classrooms to children in schools, partnering with Junior Achievement for many years. And you know what, it, it was not in one aha moment that this connection became clear to me. It was really a gradual journey that unraveled itself one layer at a time. So here I am, that, that idea of customer advocacy or advocating for someone it kind of carried itself into my professional life. Of course, egged on by, you know, the external triggers, not to mention the high-profile data breaches and cybersecurity incidents that, that regularly come to our notice. And also, um, indeed, supported by a company that truly cares about privacy um, and data protection. And then, you know, I would also like to mention organizations such as IAPP that you mentioned uh, in the intro, International Association for Privacy Professionals. It's really the only organization of its kind that has really given a lot of credence to the profession of privacy. In fact, I was the first batch that certified the CIPT, which is their techn um, technology certification, back in 2009. And I've been with them since then, as you said, volunteering for them, and most recently this year, being part of their Women Leading Privacy Advisory Board. And I'm really excited 
um, to meet some amazing women and learn a lot from their journeys and their work. So very exciting times for me indeed. Absolutely. And I can tell it's definitely a bone that you were born with and how you've helped many others along the way, not just at your organization, but also in your free time and in helping others. And that's a great quality. And it's a great way that you've been able to empathize and really put yourself in the shoes of others to look at them from their vantage point, whether it's privacy or whether it's someone who isn't as fortunate. Um, I've worked with other organizations in the past, like Habitat for Humanity or the Special Olympics. And I think that's really great that you've done that work. Empathy, empathy. That is the the word that I was looking for. You hit the nail on the head. Thank you. Well, so going back, let's go back 20 years or so for a minute. And you you, you mentioned something that it sounds obvious to me now that you said it, but I haven't heard this term before. You mentioned consent management platform. Was this a new thing at the time in the early 2000s? Or was this something that already existed? And how did you go about creating or can you share a little insight about what that means for the layperson like myself when you talk about that? Yes. No, it was not something that was um, probably not even a term then. I think I, I picked that term up later on um, in my career. Um, it was just a marketing platform. Um, they called it marketing because as you know, the idea of consent and choice um, uh, plays a very big role in marketing and how we use customer personal information to generate marketing or to disseminate marketing to them. So at that time, I don't think it was called consent management platform. Uh, it was in-house capability that we um, were developing that basically allowed the customer to, to um, make their preferences known to American Express. So what kind of marketing are they interested in or what kind of offers would they like? What kind of offers do they not want to receive from, um, from American Express and so on and so forth? So it was just designing that entire front end or the customer experience, a digital journey, and also storing the da that data internally, creating a system of record for that data, and then disseminating that information to marketing so that they could then apply it and honor those choices in a way that was required by the laws of that particular country. So that was an entire in-house project or initiative that I led. And I believe I traveled to 10 countries just to kind of roll that out initially for requirements gathering, you know, working with legal, with compliance, with the business folks in all of those markets. And then eventually after rollout, um, I had to go back again to do the training and kind of uh, help with the implementation activities. That's so fun that you got to travel to 10 countries or so while also working. And question back about consent management platform was, it sounds like you put these things in place that are now required by law in terms of getting people to, to opt in or consent to different things. Were you doing this because you were data driven and it was important to capture this information to better serve the customers from a marketing standpoint? Or are you doing it because that's what was required for compliance or, or somewhere in between? That's a great question. I think at the time it was only more because we were more of a customer centric. So as you know, American Express as a brand is known for being um, a very customer centric, customer focused brand. So at the time, although some of the countries may have had certain consent requirements, 
But I think we were doing it more to be that customer-centric, get to know your customer kind of a brand. So we wanted to know what you want, uh, what you like. Um, the idea there being that your opted-in customers are probably your most engaged customers and your most loyal customers. So I think that was the kind of the, the incentive behind creating that, not so much the requirement driven from a, from a compliance or regulatory need. Well, it's funny, or maybe it's not funny, but how things have changed over the years and evolved. And you mentioned before, like basic human rights from one perspective, if you're in the EU versus here in the US, uh, having CCPA and other laws up in the pipeline from different states coming to be. But yep. With this, Champa, so now that we have some context and really understand what motivates you, and, and one of those things seems to be helping others, let's give the listeners some actionable takeaways they can apply themselves. So my question to you is, what are your three recommendations for the audience? Great question. I think uh, some of the actionable recommendations might be Create a policy framework that you can hang your hat on. So as, as you know, Jeff, privacy can sometimes be viewed as somewhat of a subjective, sometimes a bit judgmental at times um, kind of a concept. When you put pen to paper, you not only crystallize your thoughts, but you're able to create something concrete that you can lean on. You're able to connect with other maybe available frameworks in your company, such as information security program or your data governance framework, et cetera. And also a solid policy framework is also a good way to evidence to the regulators that you actually are doing this right or you got this. So have that policy, that, that concrete policy framework, create that, envision that. The second thing that is very, I think, privacy is that follow a principle-based approach. So uh, privacy is about trust and fairness. Creating a program that is built upon a set of principles that are rooted in the core values of your company will kind of keep you ahead of the curve. So know that principles are a set of promises that you're actually making to your client or to your customer. So like the ideas of collection minimization, retention limitation, transparency, allowing individual access, maintaining integrity and quality of your personal data, uh, etc. So once you've laid these out, you will kind of not find yourself having to respond afresh to each new regulation that comes along. Your program, which you have built around these values and, and principles, likely already accounts for it. So, so privacy for you then becomes more than, you know, a compliance check the box exercise. That's kind of the second thing. And I think the final thing I'd like to touch upon is privacy risk management. So if you follow a risk prioritized approach to privacy, it kind of breaks it down for you and for your company. So end of the day, really, privacy is a risk discipline. So being able to formally put it into your enterprise risk framework and risk management strategy is important. Privacy can be viewed as not just a compliance or operational risk, but also a social and reputational risk for your organization. If you are able to follow sound principles of risk management, this will lend further credence to something that can sometimes come across as being at odds with business objectives. So as an example, if you're able to assess and quantify inherent risks in, let's say, a particular process or a system or a platform, or your vendors even, 
this will give you a good sense of what kind of control environment you should be looking to build. So just applying, you know, risk uh, management 101 principles is very helpful. There's some really good points here. So maybe we can dig in a little deeper on a couple of these. Let's start with the last one. So you just recently mentioned, you know, quantifying that risk. How, for someone who maybe is new to privacy or the space, how does one even go about, I guess, thinking about this from multiple step approach, creating a framework? Like, what does that look like in practice? And then when you begin to quantify the risk and create these, these scores or metrics that become more objective and less subjective, like what you talked about in number one. So I guess I'm kind of mixing a couple of your points here. But can you share a little bit insight on how to create a framework or an example of, of what policy would look like and then how you actually measure those things and make it more objective? Yeah, so thankfully, there are models available that you can leverage very easily, especially for risk assessment. That's an easy one because um, if you are able to, like I said, assess your inherent risk, right? So the two factors that go into quantifying inherent risk would be your impact and the likelihood of that risk materializing. And then if you put numerical scores against those, you should be able to come up with high, medium, or low inherent risk. Should be fairly simple to do. Uh, like I said, uh, there are models available that you can very quickly leverage. Once you have that, the next step would be to quantify the effectiveness of your controls, because that that then will give you a good sense of what residual risk, if any, you are left with. Right. So the stronger your control environment, obviously, the lesser you have to deal with any residual risks, and vice versa. So I think. Quantifying things in privacy makes a lot of sense. So as, as you know, um, Jeff, privacy is not as mature a discipline as, as something like information security is. So all the more reason to kind of make it quantitative so that you can showcase to management or to your C-suite what the limitations are of, let's say, not following through through something that you are recommending or what are the fallouts, what could be the fallouts in terms of regulatory sanctions or fines and things of that nature. The more numbers you can add to, the, to, to your presentation, the better it makes it look. And this is very important, especially for privacy. Yeah, so something just came to mind as, as you're talking about this privacy. Do you think of, and you mentioned info security too, right? And we know organizations are spending lots of time, money, resources in InfoSec. When you think of privacy, do you think of this more as something relating to compliance, or do you think that this is almost like insurance for the company and it's something to do proactively, or do you see some most organizations applying privacy rules or applications in-house more as a reactionary measure? No, I think those are good points. I think that it started out being a compliance Kind of thing that you had to do, right? Like a compliance burden almost. But now it is morphing itself into more of a business enabler or a differentiator in the marketplace, honestly, because like I was saying, privacy is all about trust. And, and if your clients are able to trust you with their personal and sensitive information, that's where you differentiate yourself as a business in the marketplace. So I think what had started as, a, as more of a compliance burden or a compliance obligation 
is slowly morphing into something that people are doing or should look to do proactively. And that goes back to my earlier point about building your, your framework and creating the policy structure and building it around values and principles and not building it around a specific regulation or requirements that are provided by a certain regulation. Yeah. So Shampa, it seems like you have some really tremendous experience in privacy. And I understand that your perspective has also been shaped by travel. You mentioned earlier, early in your career, traveling to 10 countries as part of your job. And travel is something we all love to do. Uh, Me personally, I miss it. I can't wait to fly once restrictions are loosened. My last trip actually was to our headquarters in Vienna, Austria, and that was in December of 2019. So it's been over a year since I've been on a plane. Love traveling. And I bet you have some really good stories you can share. So I'd be curious to learn how your travel experiences have impacted your view on data protection. Yes, great question. I'd like to say I learned a lot. You learn a lot just by observing the people and, and cultures. I spoke to this a little bit earlier on. There are regional nuances. There are variations in the way people perceive privacy, right, as a fundamental right versus as something that we have to do because it's a compliance requirement. Those are so many different ways that privacy is, is perceived as. I went to, you mentioned Austria. I went to Italy to rule out our consent management capability. Well, it was not to rule out, but actually at the very beginning. So this was like, you know, we are gathering requirements. We are talking to business. We are talking to different stakeholders. I remember my week in, in Rome, and I think I combined it with a weekend so that I could go visit the countryside. I remember to this day with such fondness, the hospitality, the people in, that, in the office offered us. Like they took such good care of us. Like we had <laughs> enough food for <laughs> that could last, could have lasted an, an entire month. And the meetings were just three days. And they were so wonderful as a culture. I think they are big on food. And they, they, they were people that brought in home cooked meals for us. But, you know, when it came to actual business discussions or meetings, we couldn't agree on anything. We're very passionate about whatever it is that, that um, they are laying out. And it was so hard to make them agree on, on anything. So at the end of the day, you know, we happily, we found a happy medium that worked for both. But then I remember to this day how they keep the, you know, the, the, the social aspects kind of separate from the professional aspects. And I, I will never forget that. It was such a cultural a difference in the way they looked at everything and the way they treated us was just so beautiful. And, and the friendships that you form stay with you throughout your career. That's something I really remember to this day some of the friendships that I've made in these countries. I, I connect with those people to this day, although I haven't worked with them directly for, for so many years. Italy, Sweden, and UK. That was our, um, I think it was a two-week-long trip for, to those three countries. And just, just amazing, just, just meeting people and, and trying to understand their, their viewpoints and, and their cultural nuances was quite fascinating. You know, a theme I'm picking up here with you, Shampa, is how you connect with people, how you 
look at things through their lens and their perspective, how you empathize. And also something that I love is how you embrace authentic culture. And you're talking about, you know, traveling around Rome and the countryside and trying foods and, and speaking to people and, and learning and really soaking it in from, from the Italian perspective. And then also on the business side, how it seems like the work dynamic and culture is a little different, but in that context, you kind of had to fit in and figure out a way to make it work. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I fit in or not, but you know, at the end of the day, we did roll out that capability for them. And it was such a good, in terms of timing, it worked out so well because I think around the same time when we rolled this capability out, there was this, I believe it was this e-privacy was the law that came out around the same time or, or initial versions of that law came out, which was all about cookies consent. You'll remember this. this it was all about consent for cookies. And it just so happened that we had just launched the capability and then there was talk about, oh, now we have to modify and we have to enhance the capability because now we have to capture consent for uh, marketing cookies for all of our proprietary websites and microsites. So I think the business was grateful that we had launched the capability and we kind of built up on that. But uh, it just so worked out. It worked out fine at, at the very end. I think it, was, it took about end to end, about nine months to completely roll it out and, and have um, them use it. But it worked out well with Italy and also with the UK and, and Sweden. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, if someone listening relates to your story and wants to inspire others, or maybe they just really dig your why and they're all about helping others, or maybe they're very passionate about privacy and they want to get into the space uh, from a privacy and data protection standpoint, where should someone like that start? Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, honestly, if someone's listening to this podcast, they probably have already embarked on this journey and they're probably getting ready to tell their own story. These are really, really exciting times to be in, especially for folks who are leaning towards embracing privacy for whatever reason, as you said. Uh, but they aren't quite sure. So back in the day, you probably had to be a lawyer like yourself to, to make good strides in this profession, but you don't anymore. You have probably seen the recent emphasis on privacy engineering. They have really defined this role with a lot of detail. IAPP has done a lot of work on this, and I think it's a great fit for people who have a technical background. I feel like this is a, a role that requires a good mix of business um, acumen, technical know-how, a basic risk and compliance mindset, and you know the, the desire to do the right thing, as you mentioned. So privacy engineering, that's coming up very quickly. And then pure information security, that's another field that's so closely linked with privacy. It's very easy to transition into, you know, from one field to the other. The other thing that I would like to call out is there is another certification that IAPP offers. It's called the Certified, I think, Information Privacy Manager. I think that's what it's called. That's a great one. If somebody wants to, you know, uh, start off in this uh, profession or is kind of wondering where to start, that is a great course to, to go through and to certify in. Some of these certifications are really helpful and they're very well designed. So that's something that I would definitely 
encourage people to look into and take, especially if they have an interest in this field. So you mentioned you don't have to be a lawyer in the space, and you're, you're totally right. What about from an engineering standpoint? If, if one wanted to take the certification course from IAPP, does one need to ha have an engineering background, or is this open to any individual? No, you don't have to have engineering background. You actually don't have to have any kind of a background to take any one of these certification exams. When I took mine, this was in 2008, 2009 uh, timeframe. They just had a few certifications, but now they have a, a whole host of offerings. So they're each is focused towards a different area. So like mine was technologies, because that was my area of interest uh, and training. But there are other ones that are like the one that I mentioned is more project management. So if that's your area, you could look into that. There are ones that are more regional specific. So there's one for EU. I know there's one for US and the US privacy laws. Uh, so that there are different ones. So whichever your area of interest or uh, you have a background in, you could pick that, that particular certification and you could give it a try. The information, they have a ton of information that you can leverage and just, you know, start to get to know about the, the different areas that they offer. Got it. So it sounds like if one doesn't have a ton of experience, they can begin their education journey and read up, learn, and get certified. Yeah. And if they're already working in InfoSec, it's pretty, it seems like there might be opportunities to transition into privacy or vice versa, since those two teams are yes. working pretty closely together. Excellent. So, Champa, let's talk future. What is your one prediction for 2021? I think it is a need for uh, disciplined and sound data management practices that will become very important for organizations in 2021. So the idea that data is your key strategic asset has been around for a while now, right? So knowing your data, as cliched as that might sound, is really key to the success of an organization. And, and organizations are realizing that in order to unlock the potential of the data that they have or that they are collecting, they need to have a good data governance strategy, again, founded upon those ethical principles that we spoke about earlier. You know, Chief Data Office that is founded upon strong data governance principles and a framework will be a successful data office. So when I say data, you know, what I'm talking about here is obviously personal data and sensitive data. What are you collecting? What are you processing them for? How are you classifying them? Where are you storing them? Cloud or on-prem? What countries are they going to? Are they flowing cross borders? Who are you sharing them with? So for example, third-party data sharing. So all of those things, it's very, very important to not only know, but also put those sound governance strategies around each one of those areas. So I think that would be very, that, that it's already out there, but I feel there'll be further fine tuning of this area in 2021 in a very big way. You mentioned some interesting things here around PII, personally identifiable information, and knowing your data and unlocking the potential of the data that's being collected, right? And you talked about cloud versus on-prem and cross-border sharing. In the same thought of looking to the future, what privacy-enhancing technologies are you most excited about that will help you accomplish some of those goals? Currently, so for example, I sit in a risk and compliance organization, right? So on most days, I'm telling business what they cannot do, either because there is a law there 
uh, there is an internal policy. What I would like to do, Jeff, is provide them with alternatives or ways that they can achieve their objective, but in a privacy-friendly way. This is a really exciting area for someone like me to totally geek out on. So all of the amazing work that is happening in this area, right? The idea of embedding privacy-preserving technologies in your most critical systems or business processes. And this also really fulfills the idea of privacy by design and by default, right? So one of the, the foundational pillars in the famous um, privacy by design framework that was created and socialized by Dr. Anne Kabukian as you know, is exactly this, right? Embedding privacy by design and by default. And there, there are so many technologies that are out there already. I personally myself have uh, used automation in a big way, and I cannot really stress enough about the value that automation brings to the table. Automated controls are better controls because they provide consistency, they provide uh, reliability, they provide a solid audit trail. Of course, a lot depends on exactly how you're implementing them, you know, and how you've configured them to work most optimally in your environment, et cetera, to give you the best value. But as an example, an automated privacy impact assessment tool, right? We all use privacy impact assessments today. I really started when we used to do these on Excel spreadsheets. Very manual, very tedious, very hard to do version control. But now you have amazing tools, workflow management that let you manage this whole privacy impact assessment in an automated fashion. DSRs. So I think you and I both live in a world where data subject requests have become so huge today. And there are solutions that help organizations facilitate these inquiries that are made by, by individuals, right, who are trying to or, or wanting to exercise their data rights. Tools for data discovery. We talked about uh, data discovery a little bit earlier. This is done through automated technology that again helps organizations determine and classify the kind of PII, the kind of sensitive data that they own uh, and they process. De-identification solutions that help data scientists or researchers and other stakeholders that, to derive value from data sets without compromising the privacy of their, their data subjects or their clients. So all of these tools, I think this is a very, very exciting area and one that, is, that has been growing steadily over the last few years. I think since maybe around uh, GDPR or right before GDPR, I think that's when we saw a whole slew of these tools come out, hit the marketplace. Those were kind of the initial versions. Now you've seen a lot of sophistication that it has kind of reached. So really, really exciting area the privacy-preserving technologies that are out there and people are, are building on a regular basis. Yeah, so in the, in the breadth of PII and de-identification, you see yourself using tools like a synthetic data solution, and are you already using other tools today to anonymize data? Yes, we use some, some tools, but the idea of, you, you brought up synthetic data, that is just fascinating to me, Jeff. I just feel like that is like a solution to all of my problems, literally. So <laughs> being able to get my hands on this AI-generated synthetic data, I know very little about it, but I know enough to know that it will solve a lot of my problems that I deal with on a daily basis. So, so 
Here, this is data that is completely uh, anonymous. It looks like my client data, but it, it doesn't relate back to any of my clients, which is awesome. And it can be leveraged in the same place where today I am having to use production data because I don't have access to this, this synthetic, non-private, non-personal data. Absolutely. I, this, this is what you know, makes me, gets me excited, gets me going is to know that there are companies that are really investing time and effort and uh, investing a lot of money to come up with these solutions. Absolutely, I see banks such as mine and, and other institutions, and even in healthcare or in, in all of these other areas, I'm sure that these are absolutely you know, essential strategies that organizations must embrace for success. So it seems like the themes that I'm picking up for your 2021 prediction and then also in terms of which technologies you're most excited about really revolve around unlocking the data that is there and also automating things to be more efficient in your work. Absolutely. It's all about data and automation. (laughs) So this is fun. So let's, if it's okay with you, Shampa, let's play a game. All right. (laughs) All right, all right, all right. So Shampa. I'm going to give you two options, and you say the first thing that comes to mind. And you're welcome to answer with one word, or you can give (laughs) a full explanation. Totally your choice, all right? All right. Okay, ready, set, go. First one, iced tea or iced coffee? Iced coffee. GDPR or CCPA? Oh, gosh, CCPA. Open source or proprietary? Transparency, open source. Online meetups or in-person conferences? You know, I am always for in-person conferences. Thank you very much. Okay, this is a throwback to earlier in this conversation, back to your early days with Consent Management Platform. Opt-in or opt-out? Totally (laughs) opt-in. Privacy or security? Okay. So don't even get me started. I think we mentioned this several times in this conversation. It is never one or the other, Jeff. The idea that the objectives of one are somehow at odds with those of the other is a fairly archaic one, right? So privacy cannot survive without security. Security, on the other hand, may not have some of the privacy-centric concepts that we talked about, like choice and consent or notice, and may concern itself more with technical controls, let's say. But security professionals need the privacy pro to define risk profiles of personal and sensitive data that the organization may have. This will enable them to design controls that adequately safeguard that data. So, so privacy and security, security professionals work together to attain a common goal. Creating, which is basically creating the strongest control environment around personal and sensitive data. Sorry that took so long, but this is one of my pet peeves. And this is something that I deal with on a daily basis is to explain to people how they're not, they're not at odds with each other. In fact, they enable each other. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't have to choose one or the other. Like on my cell phone, I have WhatsApp or Signal. So if you have to choose one of these, which one would you choose? <laughs> okay, this one's easier. <laughs> I think Signal for me, and, and not because of the latest brouhaha with privacy and WhatsApp, but, but 
a little bit more deep rooted than that, but but we'll leave that discussion for another day. <laughs> okay, three more. Amazon Prime or brick and mortar? You know, I am a touch and feel shopper, so always brick and mortar for me. Android or iOS? Um, iOS. Okay, and last one. Pancakes or French toast? I love pancakes. Oh my God, totally pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> pancakes it is. <laughs> Champa Chatterjee is the Director of Data Privacy at Silicon Valley Bank, co-chair of the IAPP's chapter in Phoenix, and a member of the Women Leading Privacy Advisory Board. Thank you so, so much, Champa. It was a pleasure getting to know you today. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it thoroughly, Jeff. I hope you enjoyed listening to the very first episode of our show. We will be back soon with another exciting story from the front lines of data and privacy. Please follow, download, and subscribe to the Data Democratization Podcast. If you have any questions, of course, please send us a voice recording to podcast at mostly.ai. Happy Data Privacy Day, everyone. Make sure you take this opportunity to reflect on your privacy health, be it in a professional or personal setting. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.